strategy is easier to state than it is to budget for. So when the Pentagon leadership discusses the rising threat of China, are they putting military dollars where their mouths are? For one answer, we turn to analysis of the budget by Govini and its senior vice president, Jim Mitri. Jim, good to have you back. Thanks much. And you have done a detailed analysis through the Govini magic algorithmic engine, I guess you could call it, and came up with a very detailed analysis of the military budget as proposed for 2022. But what does it say about that big question, namely the threat of China as a military force? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Just briefly, context in terms of what we did. Every year, we put out a scorecard that looks at the budget in a different way than the way the department presents it. And that's because, to your point on the magic here, uh, the magic is machine learning. And we apply that to the data in a way that allows us to extract unique insights that you wouldn't get just if you look at it the way the department puts out the budget. And so this year, what we wanted to do was basically examine what the department's core investments are that relate to its ability to engage in war. What are the core elements of warfare that it's investing in? And it covers five different categories. Uh, organize, which is really about recruiting, training, and maintaining the force. Outfit, which is about equipping the force for war. Offset, which is also about the weapons of war, but it's focused really on those that are going to change the character of war. So think cyber, unmanned systems, artificial intelligence. Operate, which is about the missions the department's engaging on a daily basis. And then overhead, which covers institutional support for the military, not directly related to war fighting. Now, To your specific question, we learned a great deal uh, in going through this exercise. And the main thing that jumped out at us is it's clear that the department wants to prioritize investments for China. It's considered the pacing threat for the armed forces. And in many ways, the budget does go about doing that. But the surprise for us is that there's more growth investments that are going to help organize the force and in overhead than there are for the bits of equipment and and weapons of war that you would have in order to outfit the force or offset competitors. And when you say that there is a relatively large amount devoted to organizing, that's defined as recruiting, training, maintaining the force, including U.S. military pay, education, training, equipment, maintenance, and security assistance for allies and partners. That's the Govini definition there. But in some ways, don't all of those activities ultimately support whatever it is the strategy that the Pentagon planners see as important? Yes. So everything here is necessary for the department to successfully execute its strategy. The question is what the right balance is. And so when it comes to something like organize, all those things, of course, are important. But The department's budget grew 1.6%, and its investments in military personnel grew 2.7%, right? That trend has been happening over the last five years, where investments in military personnel exceed the amount the department's overall budget is growing. And what that means is that then there's less resources available to offset competitors or to outfit the force with the key weapons of war that they need. That's the dynamic that we're seeing playing out. Sure, you don't want a two-million-man standing army if all they have is squirt guns to take to the battle, in other words. No, that sounds a little bit like the North Korean army. (laughs) Good. Well, let's leave them that way. But uh, with respect to those investments that do point to taking on China, what are some examples of that type of procurements or, or other programs? 
So there's a variety of thoughtful and smart investments the department is making here to that end. And in the offset portfolio, which again are the key investments the department needs to make to change the character of warfare, we're seeing an interesting shift in the mix of investments. So over the last couple of years, the department's investing much more in information type of capabilities. That's computers, that's data, that is AI, command and control, things of that nature. Less in some of the physical kind of traditional hardware that the department would look to develop. And that shift really started in the 2020 time period. There's a pretty pronounced change there, but it's been cemented by this budget. And within the outfit portfolio, for example, the only area the department's really seeing an increase in investment besides nuclear weapons is in C4 ISR and IT systems, which jumped a big amount, 7.8%. I was going to say, yes, and by the way, we're speaking with Jim Mitri, Senior Vice President of Govini. If China was to try to do something truly offensive against the United States, it would probably begin and, in their estimation, possibly end with what they would do in cyberspace. So these investments that you mentioned, do they also include cyber offensive capabilities, so far as we can tell? Yes. It includes the range of cyber capabilities, you know, offensive, defensive. To some extent, when it comes to cyber, it's sometimes a little bit hard to draw the line. It might be conducting defense by being more forward-leaning, if you will. But yes, this does cover the range of the department's cyber investments. Because we would want to take out China's C4I systems before they could take out those of the United States. Right. So to your point here, who knows exactly what a future war with China could look like? That's part of the problem is that the department hasn't engaged in a great power war in quite some time, right, really since back to World War II, uh, and hasn't planned for in a serious way since the Cold War. And so as it's starting to refocus on what great power war could look like against China, there's a question of how that might start. And certainly there's reason to believe that it would be advantageous for either side, the Chinese or the Americans, to try to blind the other, to try to deaf the other, to try to mute the other by attacking their space-based and air, you know, air ground-based communication systems. All right. And uh, with respect to those investments that are offset-related, are they pretty much across the board, Army, Navy, Air Force, or is one particular armed service getting more of this than the others? Well, the Air Force over the last few years has been investing the most in what we define as offset-type capabilities. But there is an interesting wrinkle with the 22 budget, where their investments in artificial intelligence actually drop a bit, about 21% relative to where they had been. And it's the other military departments that are investing a little bit more, as well as the organizations in the Office of Secretary of Defense, such as DARPA. And what's going on with some of the kinetic investments, such as the new presumed bomber that would be coming at some time, the B-23 or whatever they call it. And then also things like we just saw news reports of Russia having some kind of super fast kinetic missile. Is that also happening in the U.S. military? Right. So within the FY22 budget, what the department tried to do is actually cut investments in its legacy forces as a way to free up resources that they could invest into more modern capabilities like the new bomber. And we certainly did see that. The Air Force, again, for example, cut about 200 airplanes from its inventory. Now, the first question is whether or not Congress will stand for that. And there's a, you know, a decent chance some of those proposed cuts by the department aren't actually accepted and, and will find their way back in to the budget uh, once Congress finishes its work. But 
to the extent that we're seeing the department's proposal out there and what they're trying to do that with that money, while some of it, it is going into modernizing the force with new capabilities like the bomber, the surprising thing is that more of that money was actually shifting out of the outfit investments and getting into organized into overhead. Overhead, for example, within this budget jumps 6%, which is non-trivial in a one-year time frame. Because in many ways, they have no control over some of those costs, pensions, health care. That's right. There are certainly some structural dynamics that lead to annual increases in overhead costs. But one of the dynamics we've noticed is that the department had, over the last few years, really put a focus on reform. And it might be that that effort is running out of steam. So if you look at the Army's night court process, for example, which is the label they used for their reform work, each of the last three years, the amount of savings they found has gone down. And over the last year, the Congress eliminated the position of the Office of Chief Management within the Department of Defense, whose primary responsibility was to look for reform. And so it could very well be the case that the low-hanging fruit is gone and those easy kills within the program and easy ways to find efficiencies are removed. But not having that same concerted focus on it could lead to further cost growth. And that's the concern that we're trying to flag here. 6% jump in one year, given the fact that overall overhead dollars are still somewhat consistent with historical norms. It might be okay, but what we don't want to see is that 6% jump each of the next five years, right? That would be problematic. And getting back to the China pivot, if you will, I think that's a word from the Obama administration, the pivot to Asia. Who's paying for this? That is to say, nobody thinks that there will be a large ground war with China and a giant army. So is the army paying for the pivot? Yeah, great question, Tom. And, and you're right. When it comes to the Pacific, there's more water than land. And so the general expectation is that the Air Force and the Navy, to include the Marine Corps, would be doing a lot more in a China warfight than the Army. And so as a result, there's been an expectation that the Army's budget is going to be cut. And people have kind of been waiting for that to happen over the last few years. And what we've seen in this budget is that there is a decrease in the Army's investments in operate by about 10%, which is significant. But that is really reflecting the drawdown of troops from Afghanistan and the broader Middle East. And it really only amounts to about $3.3 billion of savings. So it's not enough to pay for the necessary modernization and posture investments the department's going to need in order to effectively deter Chinese aggression in the Western Pacific. And whether or not the department will revisit the Army's top line in the FY23 cycle is going to be a big question in an area to continue watching. And what about the Navy in all of this? Well, the Navy has been trying to maintain its readiness and get past this point in time where we've had a series of catastrophic collisions out at sea, given the fact that the training and maintenance on naval ships has not been what it should be. And one of the surprises that we noticed in the budget is that the Navy is continuing to invest in operate funds, which is the funds you need to deploy your forces out at sea. And so what they're not doing is decreasing the tempo of operations so that their folks would be back at station more, able to train, or back, you know, the ships would be back in port, able to get maintenance. 
there is an increase in maintenance funding, and that seems to be the way in which the Navy is trying to get after the readiness challenge. But it is another area to watch and question whether or not the Navy can sustain the current level of operational tempo that it has, given the fact that its force structure is decreasing. Yes, because there is, I guess, still in place a strategy for a larger Navy by 100 or so ships. And with that comes the need for people that are trained to man the ships. That's exactly right. And any signs that that's still the strategy and still the budgeting priority? It does not appear that the department's on a path towards a 355-ship Navy. It seems that this administration is prioritizing the capabilities of the ships that are out there and, to your point, training and maintenance of those ships as opposed to trying to grow the capacity and get to a larger number for the sake of it. So there is certainly a preference for capability here, and I'd be surprised if that changes in a meaningful way in FY23, barring significant intervention by Congress. And just a final question contractors looking at this budget and looking at the Gavini analysis, what should they take away with respect to strategy for supporting the military and positioning themselves to get military dollars? Yeah, I think the big takeaway here is that overall, the department's top line is relatively flat at 1.6%. Perhaps it's going down a little bit once you factor in inflation. And so from a contractor perspective, the question is, what is the shift in the mix of capabilities the department's going to seek? And here, what we're seeing is clearly a shift more towards information type of capabilities. It's less of the traditional hard power, hardware, infrastructure type of investments, much more in terms of data, AI, computing, and command and control information you know, along the lines that we discussed. And so if, if you're a contractor out there trying to figure out which way to focus, it seems very clear that the trend line is more in that direction. And some of the prominent initiatives the department is unveiling here really bring that to the fore. So join all domain command and control, JATC2 is a key priority for the department. And you see it not just within one military department. The Air Force has been the first one out of the gates there, but the Navy, the Army, they're all coming around to that and investing more in that space. Jim Mitri is Senior Vice President of Govini. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to his analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six 
actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me, and I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day, and I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop, and he would focus on me, and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, Absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. 
I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. T- can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.